Welcome to this week's Point Community Church Sunday Sermon. If you'd like to learn more about the Point Community Church, please visit our website at tpcc.org.au. Well, uh, I want to ask the question uh, tonight, um, who has got the kingdom? Uh, This is a story um, that begins with David, as you heard. And I don't know what you think about when you think of David, King David. Perhaps you think of Michelangelo and this famous sculpture of uh, King David, the, the perfection of a man. Or perhaps you think of, you know, the poster of David the shepherd boy with his sheep. Uh, or perhaps David and the lion and the bear. Or perhaps the most famous story, David and Goliath. Well, we're not looking at any of those stories tonight. We're looking at a little bit less known, a little bit less familiar story, um, which is a little bit less flattering for David. And it's this story of David and Adonijah. The picture of David that we're presented with uh, here is David when he is old. Verse 1 says he was old and advanced in years. And verse 15 says that he was very old. Um, This is a portrait of the king in his room, verse 15, on his bed, verse 47, or lying down, verse 2. In other words, it's a picture of David when he was bedridden. He's not in the prime of his life anymore. He's now in physical decline. And not only was David old, but he was cold. Did you notice that as well in verse 1? That although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. He was unable, in other words, to maintain uh, normal physical body temperature. Uh, And if you've ever had a fever, you know what this is like. You know, when you're sick and you get the sweats and you, you get too hot and then all of a sudden you're cold and you can't get enough blankets on you. And even when you do, you can't get warm enough. Well, apparently... Uh, in palliative care, um, this is also a feature. Um, As people head towards the last stages of life, uh, it's not uncommon for people to lose their thermoregulation. Uh, Their heat regulation uh, starts to shut down, and some old people get really, really hot, and they're always wanting the windows open and the fans on uh, and uh, the air conditioning blasting. And then some old people... Uh, get really, really cold. And it can be the middle of summer, a 40-degree day, and they're there with their knitted jumpers and cardigans and their beanie and their knitted mittens and got 10 blankets over their knees and they still can't get warm. Well, here is David, and he's old and cold. Normal blankets weren't pro- were proving ineffective. Electric blankets hadn't been invented yet, but human warmth was available. Now, I watched a documentary some time ago on Mongolia, and in Mongolia, it really does get cold. It's freezing there in the winter, and the traditional people of Mongolia, uh, you've probably seen them, they've invented these things called yurts. It's kind of basically a circular tent, a one-room house, and the thing about um, the yurts is they're extremely practical in Mongolia in the freezing temperatures because the whole family sleeps together in the one room 
in order to keep warm, to survive the winter. Uh, and uh, you may have heard of, of campers who you know, might go down to places like Tasmania, uh, unprepared, unaware of the types of conditions that can happen there, and they get a snap cold, and they're not prepared, and they're stuck out there at night, and they have to snuggle up together for human body warmth to survive. So it's not unheard of, is it? I, I get that. Uh, and I get that somebody had to keep David uh, warm as kind of like his human hot water bottle. Um, and I get that, you know, for an aging person, he needs someone to care and to serve uh, him, uh, basically to be his nurse in his older years. I get that. But I've got to ask myself, what is going on here? Because beauty is not the solution for cold. And yet, three times we're told here in these opening verses that what they looked for for old and cold King David was someone who was young and very beautiful. In fact, what they looked for was the most beautiful woman in the entire kingdom. Now, I can't help but think of the last time in the books of Samuel and 1 Kings when we read of David and a beautiful woman. Her name was Bathsheba. And I can't help but think of Deuteronomy chapter 7 and chapter 17 where Moses gave the instructions for Israel's king when they would have a king that Israel's king was not to have many wives or foreign wives. And I can't help but think of the sad catalogue of David's own polygamy recorded in chapter, uh, chapter 3 of 2 Samuel. So what are we to make of the end of verse 4? Is this a neutral qualifying remark by our author? Or is this a positive commendation of David's morality and his superhuman self-control? Or is this evidence that David really was nearly dead? Now, whatever we make of the relationship here, one thing is very clear. That a man who cannot keep himself warm cannot rule the kingdom. And he wasn't. In a sort of upside-down way, in these opening verses, what we see is not David ruling the kingdom, but his attendants. His attendants are making suggestions to the king. The king is not the main actor. He's not calling the shots. It's the people around him. And what we see is that he's being acted upon. He's being managed. Not only was David old and cold, but he had to be told. Verse 18. Have a look at that word there in verses 18. Now, Adonijah, they said, they had to come and tell him this. They said, and now, uh, uh, behold, look, see, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord the king, do not know it. He had to be told. His own son 
was usurping the kingdom right under his nose, and David was clueless. He knew nothing about it. No idea. You see, the one thing that David needed to do as he was heading into his twilight years, he had left undone. He had failed to publicly name his successor. And when you've got shoes the size of David, you need to name who's going to follow you. Bathsheba knew. Apparently they'd had some confidential conversation. Nathan seems to know, doesn't he? But have a look at verse 20. The eyes of all Israel were looking to David to tell them who would sit on the throne after him and be king. Who was it going to be? You can imagine the media frenzy at this point. God's sovereign promise in 2, chapter, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's a, good, it's a good passage to keep in your mind as one of those big Old Testament mountaintop passages, 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God makes his everlasting promise to David that there will always be a son of David on the throne. God's sovereign promise to David does not negate his human responsibility. You see, David couldn't just rest on his laurels at this point in his life. He couldn't just cruise the home straight. He needed to name a successor. You see, who's got the kingdom? Clearly, it's not David, is it? He can't even keep himself warm. And everything in this chapter seems to be screaming incompetence. Who's got the kingdom? Is it David? I don't think so. What about Adonijah? We might get to verse 5 and think, well, hooray, at last. Because while David is shivering away on his bed in inaction, Adonijah is leaping to it. He's getting to work, isn't he? Adonijah is shooting goals. He's showing initiative and foresight. I mean, this guy, he has leadership written all over him, doesn't he? Adonijah, he seems to be everything that David's not. Young, verse 5, rich, he had the latest chariots uh, and uh, uh, military prowess. He was handsome. In fact, according to verse 6, he was very handsome. He was royal. He was, he was next in line. I think that's what verse 6 is saying. Uh, his other brothers had been knocked off, so they weren't any options. Uh, he was next. Uh, and he was popular, wasn't he? He had 50 men to run ahead of him. That's quite a quite a, you know, that would make quite an impression. Uh, he also had the military muscle of Joab, the commander of David's army. He had the religious authorization of Abiathar, the priest, according to verse 7. He had all of his brothers, the king's sons, or those that left, and all of the royal officials of Judah, according to verse 9. All of these people, he said, gathered around him. They were giving him their support. They were getting behind him, rallying uh, behind him. He was even very religious, wasn't he, in verse 9? Sacrificing sheep and oxen and fattened cattle. What a guy. He seems to be just the man for the moment, doesn't he? The perfect uh, fit, the full package, just what the kingdom needs. Everything going for him. Well, almost. 
You see, I think our author is viewing Adonijah through a lens, but it's not rose-colored. I think our author is painting a portrait of Adonijah, but I think the colors are a little darker, don't you? I want to highlight those things in the passage here for you. Uh, As we read through the books of Samuel and Kings, we begin to realize that when the author pays you a compliment on your good looks, it may not be a compliment. It may actually be his literary device, his way of showing you, suggesting that you too might be in the same ranks as people like Absalom and Saul and Eliab. All of these men were very impressive figures physically, higher than everyone else, good-looking, and yet they were rejected or disastrous as leaders. So when our author tells us here that Adonijah was very handsome, we shouldn't think, wow. We perhaps should be thinking, oh. Also, we should note how our author keeps bringing our attention to the notable exceptions to Adonijah's party. Did you notice those? Uh, Let me give you an example. Um, Verse 8. But Zadok the priest and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and Nathan the prophet and Shimei and Ray and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Or verse 10. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet and so on it goes. And you can see it again in verse 19 and verse 26. You see, it seems that Adonijah is leaving the most important people out. Nathan, for example, was the prophet of God, but he wasn't invited. In other words, Adonijah is not consulting God's word when it comes to making his plans. He's leaving God out. In fact, I think verse 5 is quite telling, isn't it? Let's read that together. Um, We read there that Adonijah exalted himself. By saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Can you see who's the center of Adonijah's world? Well, it's Adonijah, isn't it? He wasn't seeking first God's kingdom. He was seeking first his own. Lust for power and position and self-promotion, they're not really the hallmarks of godly leadership, are they? Isn't character the thing that 1 Timothy 3 and Titus emphasize as the qualities that, that qualify someone for godly leadership in God's kingdom over competence and conviction? And isn't it godliness, not giftedness, that we should be looking for? in leaders, in God's kingdom. Adrian Rogers says that in order to get above what the Lord has put under you, 
you have got to learn to get under what the Lord has put above you. It's true, isn't it? Adonijah could have taken that to heart. Because it seems that Adonijah is actually moving on the sly, behind his father's back. And the ring of men that he does gather around him are actually, when we look across these books of Samuel and Kings, men who were disenchanted with the David administration. Men who had lost positions when others had been promoted. And so it seems that these people were men who had a grudge, men who had a chip on their shoulder against David. Men, well, there seems to be a kind of ugly power play here, a bit of jealousy and rivalry and envy. You see, people say that you can tell a leader because people will follow them. But I want to say you can tell a godly leader because godly people will follow them. Just because you've got the support and the backing and the people behind you doesn't make it right. But there's another clue here in terms of Adonijah, isn't there, in verse 6. And it's actually, I think, our author's explanation for Adonijah's behaviour. Have a look at verse 6. It says, His father had never at any time displeased or grieved him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? Now, there's an author by the name of Paul Tripp who's written a number of parenting books um, uh, for Christians. And he puts it this way. He says, It's very tempting as parents uh, to make our lives easier by making our children happy by withdrawing our authority. Now, many of you aren't in the position of parents, but some of you are. But one day you might be. And it is very easy to make our children happy, to make our lives easier by withdrawing our parental authority. And I think that's what's happened here with David and Adonijah. Our author is explaining Adonijah's adult behavior in terms of his childhood discipline or lack of discipline. We're told in Hebrews chapter 12 that the Lord, that is God, disciplines us, those he loves, and that's actually how we know that we're his children. We're told that God disciplines us for our good in order that we might share in his holiness. We're told that later on, you see at the time discipline doesn't feel very nice, but later on it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. And isn't that what's lacking in David's family and kingdom? Now, look, I know that when we start talking about discipline, there are some people who have taken what the Bible says about discipline and have misused it and used it to justify and excuse all types of horrible behavior. That's not what we're talking about. That's wrong. And I know, on the other hand, there are godly parents who have loved and cared for and disciplined their children uh, in godly and good homes, and yet who grieve over the choices of their adult children. And that's a sad reality. I'm not talking about either of those extremes here, but there is something here, isn't there? At least our author seems to think so in terms of understanding Adonijah. 
that the reason Adonijah was treasonous as an adult was because he was indulged as a child. And take an unquestioned child into the world of power and politics, and you end up with an Adonijah. His self-appointment was an expression of his unchecked upbringing. Perhaps he was the center all along. So no, Adonijah, he might be young and handsome and popular. He's not the answer either, is he? In fact, he's a threat, a serious threat, putting the lives now of Bathsheba and Solomon in danger. Oh, what a mess. What a family. What a kingdom. What a crazy time to belong to in God's kingdom. I think it can be easy for us to become impatient with the fragility of human leaders in God's kingdom. I think it can be easy for us to become frustrated with the failures of human leaders in God's kingdom. Even disillusioned over their faults when leadership becomes out of touch, when moral failures compromise our witness, when internal threats threaten our unity. It can be easy, I think, to become disillusioned with God's kingdom, even to give up on it. You see, who has got the kingdom? Because it's not David, and it's not Adonijah. Well, I think this passage is showing us that God has got the kingdom. Roland Wallace comments on this. He says, God made no spectacular, miraculous intervention. He did not strike Adonijah down with a sudden illness, nor did he send a bolt of lightning from heaven to spoil his celebration. But at the right time and in the right situation, he simply inspired minds with thoughts and gave words that turned events in the right direction. How critical individual faithfulness is in this story. Did you notice that? So much depends on Nathan. Nathan spoke to Bathsheba. Bathsheba spoke to the king. Nathan spoke to the king. And all of a sudden, old, cold King David is stirred to faith and action. Did you see that? In verse 29, have a look there. Um, verse 29, this is David full of faith and action. Verse 29. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me. And he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. You see what he's doing there? He's looking back. The Lord who delivered me out of every adversity. And David's life was certainly full of adversity, wasn't it? He's looking back and he's harnessing faith from all of God's faithfulness to him for the future. Even as he's old and cold and can't keep warm. 
And he's committing himself to do that very day, what he should have done a long time ago, and that is name and put in place Solomon as king of Israel. You see, despite David's physical weakness, despite David's ignorance and incompetence, despite David's failures as a father, God's sovereign plan goes forward. Even Adonijah and his rush for power, backed by Joab's jealousy, cannot overthrow God's plan. Even the most precarious moment, surely this is one of them, is it? Even in the most precarious moments, there is a hand that steadies the kingdom. God saw to it that his king was installed on David's throne. David's command was obeyed, and Solomon was anointed king of Israel. Read with me verses 20, uh, 39 to 40. There, Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed. Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing the pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. Did you know that the New Testament is the fulfillment of those verses? The New Testament is the sound of the trumpet. The New Testament is the sound of the pipes and the people rejoicing that David's son is on the throne. The New Testament is the sound of the ground shaking, and it did shake, didn't it? With the announcement and the noise that David's son is king. He's risen. Jesus, you see, is not old. And cold, he is strong and eternal. Jesus is not tainted by sin and moral compromise. He is pure and holy. Jesus is not ignorant and out of touch. Jesus is wise and all-knowing. Jesus has never failed as a father, and he always has disciplined us in love and for our good. Jesus has been appointed not ruler just over Israel, but he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, both now and forevermore. The New Testament is the sound of the pipes and the people shouting that Jesus is the king enthroned. Jesus said, didn't he, as he came in on Palm Sunday, and the people said, stop the children, they're shouting out that you're the king. What did Jesus say? He said, if they don't do it, the stones will cry out. The New Testament is the sound. But for all of us who have been seeking our own kingdom, it's actually not good news, is it? Surely it must be good news, Adonijah said, didn't he? As Jonathan came running to him, telling him what this noise was. Surely a man like you coming to a man like me must be bringing good news. But it's not good news, is it? 
that the son of David is on the throne, it's not good news. Not for us, who have been seeking our own kingdom first, exalting ourselves, promoting ourselves, looking out for ourselves, living for ourselves, our own fame and popularity and success, rallying around us, our little fan club, throwing our own parties in our own honour. No, the New Testament is not good news. Because all of us, myself included, are at an aren't we? The sound of the New Testament that Jesus is king brings to an end our Adonijah parties. It is the noise of another party that will drown ours out. Shouldn't we feel embarrassed and ashamed that we ever thought we could be king of our own lives? How foolish. Are our lives lived for ourselves? Because there is another party. And when we hear the noise of it, we should, like Adonijah, run. In fear of King Jesus, who is now on the throne, and take hold of the horns of the altar. Shouldn't we? Run to the cross for mercy. should make us do that, I think, this sound of another party, and plead for our lives because we have been treasonous to King Jesus. But the surprising thing is, and the wonderful thing I think about the Bible, is that the son of David delights to show mercy. Have a look at how the story ends. Let's jump to verse 51. Then it was told Solomon, behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon For behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with a sword. And Solomon said, If he will only show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the ground, but if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar, and he came and paid homage to King Solomon, and Solomon said to him, Go to your house. Adonijah has been given another chance. The son of David loves to show mercy, a chance to repent, a a chance to turn our lives around and to submit to the son of David. Jesus put it this way, didn't he, in his life? He said, go and sin no more. Live a different life. Live a life with Jesus as king. Will you do that? I remember getting to a point in my life, I grew up in a Christian home, went to church all my life, but I remember getting to a point in my life, I was listening to something on, you know that uh, sentence of Jesus, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added to you? I remember hearing a sermon on that and thinking, you know, actually, I thought that if I got good marks on my exams, a good job, then I could have enough money to free myself up to be involved in Christian ministry. But do you see what I was doing? I actually had it upside down. Jesus says, seek first my kingdom and trust me with all those other things. But I was thinking, if only I can sort all those other things out, a house and a family and a life and a car and all the things I want, then I'll be freed up to do Christian ministry. But Jesus says, no, no, seek 
my kingdom first, and all those other things will be, God will look after. Are you willing to do that? I wonder if you're, if you've heard the noise of the other party. Jesus is king. It's foolish, really, isn't it? Lives are so short. Foolish, really, to live our lives here for our own, for ourselves. And to wake up one day and realize, actually, I was meant to live for Jesus. I was meant to live for him. I was meant to put him first. And yet, I've been too captivated by all his gifts, his creation, his world, things that he's made. I forgot to honour the maker. Maybe tonight, maybe you've realised, yeah, actually I have been. Calling myself a Christian so long, come to church, and yet actually, I look pretty good on the outside, I'm, you know, I don't swear, I do all the right things, come to Pointy J. But actually, you know what? I'm actually living for myself. I'm actually, I'm the one calling the shots in my life. I'm the one making the decisions. I'm the one deciding who I'm going to go out with, who I'm going to marry, what course I'm going to do. Actually, I'm the king of my life, not Jesus. If that's you, maybe tonight's the time to take the king, the crown off your head, put it on Jesus, isn't it? Maybe the 29th is the day you should get baptised. Tell everyone that actually it's not me anymore. It's Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this old story. Thank you so much for the way that it points to the Lord Jesus. We pray, please, tonight that you would please forgive us for our Adonijah hearts. Hearts that turn away from you and seek our own glory and our own kingdoms. We pray, please, tonight that you would give us what we can't do ourselves. Please give us repentance, the ability to turn from our sin and to live with Jesus as King. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the sacrifice that takes away our sin. And we thank you that the son of David delights to show mercy. Please show mercy on us, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for our latest sermon, or better yet, join us live at 9.30 or 5 p.m. Sunday. You can find all the details on our website at tpcc.org.au.